Hey everybody, good morning. My name is Josh Pollard. I'm the adult ministries pastor here at Renovation Church. Did you know, according to surveys, people love to hear about surveys? It's true. So I brought you one today. Uh, there's a survey I recently read by a really well-respected Christian ministry called Ligonier Ministries, where they surveyed a bunch of Christians, or people that said, yes, I am a Christian, and they gave them all these statements and asked them if they believed these statements as true or not. And through that study, that survey, they released their findings of the top five most common unchristian, non-biblical beliefs that Christians happen to believe. And I brought those results here for you today. Here it says that according to their surveys of people that said they were Christians, 57% of them said they believed people aren't sinful by nature. 56% said they believed God accepts the worship of all religions. 73% said they believe that Jesus was created by God. 60% believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a person. And 43% said that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. And that is, it's kind of mind-boggling, I think. Uh, and it's, it's surveys like this that really kind of show you the state of the church in America. Because all five of these statements are pretty much the opposite of really core, central, biblical Christian beliefs. And yes, so many people in our churches have lost sight of what the book of Jude calls the faith once for all entrusted to God's holy people. And it's our job as the church, as believers, to contend for that faith. And to do so with stubborn love and humility, of course, but to contend Nonetheless, especially when it comes to contending with one another inside the church. The book of Jude was written to a church. So that's why our study of the book is so important. Now, if you are newer to the faith, I want you to, uh, I want to point out that maybe some of these things up here, you've just never even encountered these ideas before. And so you're thinking, well, yeah, I, I, that's what I thought. But maybe you just never encountered these before, but you're eager and you're wanting to learn more about what Scripture teaches. And so if that's you, I want you to hear today's message as just encouragement to be persistent and to grow in the faith once and all entrusted to you, all right? But the book of Jude is not talking about people that are new to the faith, that are eager to learn. No, it's talking about people that are here, that are participating in the Christian community, but they are not living Christ-like lives. And the other Christians in that community, for whatever reason, are either ignoring or excusing their sinful life, or maybe they're just unable to recognize their real ungodly character to begin with because they seem spiritual, they seem like they're in the right place or something. But what I hope for our church family, what I really hope comes out of this for us, this study of the book of Jude, is that each of us, each one of us can seriously reflect on if our lives demonstrate our belief or if our lives demonstrate our actual unbelief. We're going to be in verses 12 to 16 today of the book of Jude. You can find that on page 836 in the Bibles under your chair if you want to use those ones. <coughs> Excuse me. The book of Jude is just one chapter, so we just get uh, to those verses. That's all we got to find. Uh, today's section is a part where Jude is going to describe the character of these people that they say they're Christians, but they actively reject Christ's authority. So, and he does that for two reasons. I think one, so that we can recognize them in our, in, our, in our community, in our church. And then two, so that we can ask if, well, maybe that's me. Does this describe me? So we're going to start in verse 12, where he says this. He says, these people, 
our blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualms, shepherds who feed only themselves. Pause right there. Okay, so these love feasts that he's talking about, that's what they would call their gathering of local believers. They'd come together to have a meal together, to uh, celebrate communion together, to maybe sing some songs, to study the scriptures together. And they'd really be focused on just building one another up in love. It was much more than just a meal. And it was really these love feasts that would set the Christian communities apart from the broader community. Because they would come together, all the believers, whether they were Jews, Gentiles, young, old, rich, poor, man, women, it didn't matter. They all came together, together in one place with the understanding that they were all children of God together like a family. And they would meet to encourage each other to live godly lives. Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 says that they would meet together to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And I hope that that really sounds familiar to all of you actually, because this is part of why we believe so deeply in the house groups, right? In those smaller gatherings of totally different people all mixed together as a really central biblical part of how a Christian community should really function. It's house groups, just like love feasts. But you don't have to worry, we're not planning to change the name of house groups to love feasts anytime soon. That would be just weird. Don't want to hear about that. Now, this mark of deep love for one another that is, is part of how the world recognizes the church. It comes straight from Christ's teaching, right from him uh, in the book of John chapter 13. He says this, Christ commands this to his disciples. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So one thing we gotta keep in mind while we're studying the book of Jude is that this love that we have for a church or for each other as a church, whether that's Sunday mornings or whether that's midweek in your house groups, that love is not just a bonus that you get from people that are cool that you get to hang out with. That love is a command from the Lord. You must love those people. You must. It's a command. That's how the world's going to know you, is that you follow his commands, and, and specifically this one, to love one another. It's our identifying mark in the world. But here in book, the book of Jude, chapter, or verse 12, he's warning us about these people that are in that Christian community that are a part of what's going on, but they don't have that sacrificial love for one another. It says that they are actually blemishes on our love feasts. And that word right there for blemishes in the Greek, most other uh, English translations will, will translate it to say hidden reefs or sunken rocks. It's like a sailing term. You know, the water looks calm and smooth, but underneath it is a hidden reef. And the word there in the Greek is spalades, like Pilates with an S, which I, which I think makes a lot of sense because I did a Pilates video with my wife one time. It looked normal, looked safe. I could do this. Next day, it felt like I was dragged over a bunch of rocks. <laughs> it was a trap. It was a trap. Don't do Pilates. All right. <laughs> which I think is really what Jude's getting at here. Not don't do Pilates, but that these people look like normal waters. They look like safe waters. There's nothing abnormal if you don't look closely, but they have the potential for absolute disaster and they can sink an entire boat of Christian love in a community if we're not careful. And they do this in two directions. First, they do this by twisting our understanding of the gospel. 
If we look back to verse 12 where we left off, it describes these people like this. He says, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Man, they could insult people really well back then. It's like a lost art. Now, all of these metaphors that he uses to describe these people, they give this image, in my mind, of just wild chaos, right? Like, it's just these chaotic people. And if you read scripture and you look at who our God is, he's not a God of chaos. He's a God that he's completely free, he's unbound and can do whatever he wants, he owes nothing to anybody, but he is not chaotic. Our God is very clear, he's very intentional, he's very orderly, but Jude here is talking about these people that don't know that God, and he calls them clouds without rain. So they look promising, but they are not helpful. And they go wherever they're pushed, and they're constantly changing shape as they go. And he calls them waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. So they make a big show, and they sound powerful, and they are constant, and they are relentless, but don't give in because they're really just showing up their own, their own shame. He says that they're wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved. So they are not steady They do not have a goal. They are not guided. They just wander aimlessly, and they'll wander forever, and they are alone. And he calls these people, these gospel twisters, he calls them trees that have been uprooted. And the only thing that we can root ourselves into so that we don't twist the gospel from the true gospel is God's word. These rootless people who are in the right place, they're in churches, they're in your house groups, they're, they're part of this. They look like a tree, but they have no connection to the source of life. They're not rooted in the scriptures. And we have to ask if that describes us. Does that describe you? You've got to remember this whole book of Jude is about these people that hear the word of God preached. They hear about his great love. They embrace that love, they say, but then they use his generosity as an excuse from holy living. And so they live a rootless life, adrift in the sea of culture, floating through life wherever the wind blows, wandering in perpetual darkness. And God does not want that for any of us. He wants us to have deep roots. He wants to be rooted solidly in the word, in the way, the truth, and the life so that we are stable and we are useful and we are alive and we're not wandering in the darkness. And we get that from being in God's word because the Bible is the lamp of truth in the darkness. The saved person can say with Psalm 119, I will walk in freedom for I have devoted myself to your commandments, O Lord. The rootless person twists that gospel and says, I will walk in freedom because now I don't owe God anything. These rootless people, they've been around for a long time. In fact, 1930s, 1940s, there was a German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Anyone heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? My friend Dietrich. He uh, was just an incredible story, this guy's story, you should read about him, but he saw in the German church that there was a twisting of the gospel that had snuck into the German church in the early 1900s, late 1800s, that was kind of really similar to what Jude was talking about here, and Bonhoeffer coined this term called cheap grace that he used to describe this. And cheap grace is this misunderstanding of God's grace that says, if I just come to church 
and maybe I raise my hand, maybe I come down to the front, maybe I even get baptized, then I can just live how I want because of God's great love. I've got my ticket to heaven. Call me when the train gets here. And they ignore, or maybe they don't know, that when Christ calls someone, he calls them to come die to themselves. It's a complete transformation. And Bonhoeffer saw that this cheap grace was playing a huge role in decaying what had once been a really strong Christian history in the, in the country of Germany. It was home of the Reformation. And now it became a place that could cultivate Nazi beliefs. And most of the German church at the time went right along with it, hand in hand, because they had preached such a cheap grace for so long they had all lost their call to holy living to look different than the world and not exactly the same. And it's really sad that this false gospel, this understanding of cheap grace is still around. And it's as common and infectious as the runny nose in your kid's preschool. You can't avoid it. It plagues the American church and it must be something that we ruthlessly watch out for in one another, that we have to contend against constantly with one another. Because when this cheap grace infects a church, it creates a group of so-called Christians that have no sacrificial love for one another, if they even know one another, they have no sacrificial love for the greater community outside the church walls, they have no hatred of their sin, they have no joy in sanctification, they have no fear of the Lord, and honestly, they have no salvation because all those things are evidence that they have not been reborn. True salvation is absolutely free. You cannot earn it. There's nothing you could do to earn it. It's a free gift, but it has a profound transforming effect. Cheap grace is totally free. You don't have to do anything to earn it, but it leaves you just as it found you, unchanged and unsaved. Now, this cheap grace infects a church in one main way. It's when their people are not rooted in the scriptures. This is true even for churches that have really solid preaching and churches that have vibrant fellowship and just awe-inspiring worship. If their people are not rooted in the scriptures, then they are susceptible to shipwreck on the hidden reefs of cheap grace. So we have to ask, are we those people? If you are not rooted in God's word, if you're not regularly reading the Bible in a meaningful way, then you're in danger of twisting God's grace in your life into cheap grace. It's only in that regular Bible study that you do constantly, daily, that you can get a more complete explanation of God's grace and what a life saved by that grace looks like. And that's really why, for new Christians especially, it is so important to establish that habit. And for older Christians, why it's so important to protect that habit of daily Bible reading, regular Bible study, It's there where you're going to understand who God is, who he is in your particular situation right there, what he wants for you, and who he always is because of who he always is. It's going to help you understand who you are, who you were created to be, how you should live your life. And most of all, it's going to teach you to recognize false gospels when you see them. It's going to teach you to, to have like an allergic reaction when something is unbiblical. And the more you study that scripture, the more you're going to find that as you contend for the faith, you're going to stop saying things like, well, I don't agree with that. You're going to start saying things like, well, that's not biblical. And you're going to look at your own life 
and you're going to say, hey, self, this part of my life that I really liked before and all my friends liked it and, the, and maybe the culture cheers it on, it's not biblical, so I will set myself against that. Someone that has fallen for this Christianity of cheap grace, they're going to say things like, self, I see the Bible says that, but I prefer this, and Jesus won't mind because he loves me. But no, he minds because he loves you. Cheap grace, in the end, turns the Bible into a book of suggestions that are ultimately rendered completely inconsequential by Jesus' love. And you end up staking your eternal destiny on the flimsy theology that God won't hold to the words he put in the Bible. But our God is not a breath waster. He means everything he says. And if you think you are saved, but you reject what scripture teaches, then you are rootless. And you are endangering yourself with a false gospel and you are endangering your community like a hidden reef. And I beg you to repent of that way of thinking quickly because it does not lead to eternal life in Christ. It leads to shipwreck and pain for everyone around you and it leads to an eternity of wandering in the blackest darkness for you. So do not twist the gospel. Now that's the first way that false believers in the congregation can hurt the church. The second way is through their actions. We saw it in verse 12 where it calls them autumn trees without fruit and uprooted. So they're twice dead, right? They're not just rootless. They are also fruitless. There's no connection to the source of life, and they're producing no new life for the future. Now, my wife and I want to plant a bunch of fruit trees in our yard. Anyone fruit trees in the yards? Maybe some. Well, it's because my children take an apple, take one bite, throw it away. I need free food. I, I can't keep paying for this. <laughs> Okay. I want to plant a bunch of fruit trees. But we've been waiting for this local nursery to get this really good stock of reliable fruit trees. It always produces a lot of good fruit. But it would have been a lot cheaper and a lot quicker if I just went to one of the big stores and got a couple trees there. But they're not as reliable trees. So we want to wait to get these really reliable, productive fruit trees. Because when you have a fruit tree, the whole point is to get the fruit, right? When it comes to the Christian community, the church, that love that we have for one another is kind of the point. It's the fruit. Why have that Christian community without the love we have for one another? Now, if we hop down to verse 16, we can see that the actions of these people come out of a rootless heart, and he's going to describe them for us. He says this. These people are grumblers and fault finders, they follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves. They flatter others for their own advantage. Now these people without God are easily identifiable. They're self-seeking, right? They're seeking their own ways, their own pleasures, their own desires, their own comforts to live their truth, to live their best life now, to get their checklist done. And I think that sometimes we imagine like really mean people this is describing, people we don't like at all. But it doesn't necessarily say that. It says, yeah, they, they grumble and complain, but maybe softly in the corner with their friends or maybe just on the drive home with their spouse. That's where you grumble. You know, it says they flatter people, so maybe they're really charming and charismatic. It says that they boast. Maybe they're really impressive. They've got things to boast about. 
It says that they follow their own evil desires. Maybe they're hardworking and driven people, you know? I just want to make sure we don't judge spiritual fruit with worldly eyes. We have to judge with spiritual eyes. You know, they might be really likable people, but in the end, it's always for their own gain. It's, always, it's, it's never for the selfless building up of others, for the spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. No, it's primarily for themselves. We, you see that in house groups and on Sunday mornings when people come and they're just thinking about themselves. How can I get something out of this? Who will pour into me? How this group needs to change for my desires? How can I get this group to look more like me? How can I get people in this group that I can use for what I need to get done? They're always looking for an advantage for themselves. And if you compare that description of people in the Christian community to uh, the description in Galatians 5 of true believers in the Christian community, the, the difference is so stark that it has to make you pause. It says this in Galatians 5. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, which is like patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see the two different fruits, right? The fruit of selfishness versus the fruit of selflessness. And if you looked at your communities, at your house group, or your, your people here on Sunday morning, if someone was looking in on that from the outside, would they look in and say, wow, you know, that group of believers is just so peaceful. You know, wow, those believers there, they're so loving. You know, they are so good at showing self-control with one another. You know, man, those, they're so faithful to each other, those people. Man, they sure know how to be patient with each other's weaknesses the way Christ is with ours. Is that what they would describe your community as? Is that the fruit of your community? Or are they going to look and say, wow, those people, they sure grumble a lot. They're always finding some fault to complain about. Wow, you know, they're, they're always kind of like pushing each other to get their own way in the group. You know, they're kind of manipulative with each other. You can see kind of obviously, I think, that when you love each other sacrificially and you put other people's needs above yourself and you genuinely treat them as more important than yourself, then you become more like Christ and it gives life to your community instead of sucking the life out of it. Now, I want to say once again that there is a difference here and I think this is really important to pick up on. There's a difference between being new to the faith and learning to become this person that Christ is changing you into, right? The process of sanctification is the term, right? Being changed. There's, there's a difference between that, being new, and being a person that's been around and you still live self, self-focused because you're not new at all. And I think when we're asking ourselves, man, which one am I? I need to know, am I in this camp or am I in this camp? I'm really trying to figure that out. The difference really is humility. That's what it comes down to. And if you look in verse 12, they called these people false believers who are shepherds who feed only themselves, right? It says that in verse 12. And I think that image gives such a great image of their selfishness that we find throughout the whole rest of the passage. And in Greek, the phrase, there's actually just two words. It just says shepherding themselves, which I think just opens my eyes to the hearts of these people to not submit themselves to other people, right? That they are on top. They don't submit to the protection and the leadership of our lead shepherd, of Christ. 
They don't submit to the teaching and authority of the elders of a healthy local church. They're not part of that. I think that's really important. Instead, they say, you know, I I know that the church teaches this. I know that the pastors say this, but I'm going to do this. You know, they say, I know scripture says this, but I'm going to do this. You know, they all even say, you know, I know God wants me to do this, but I don't want to do that. I'm going to shepherd myself and, and do this instead. And in the end, they have no lasting spiritual fruit that helps them or anyone else or glorifies God at all. The true believer that's just young in their walk and is eager to learn wants that instruction from wise people. That's how you can tell if that's just you, is that you want that instruction from people that have walked that path beforehand and know more about living in this new way of life. The false believer scoffs at their guide and their loving brother and sister that calls them out and they scoff at God's word. Instead of seeking out a safe and wise shepherd, they insist on shepherding themselves. And the truth is, when you insist on shepherding yourself, you don't have any real shepherd at all, and you wind up off no better off than when you started. Shepherds are really important. Jesus says it kind of like this in Matthew 15. He says, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. The book of Jude kind of echoes that warning with a quote from Enoch, which we can read if we hop back to verse 14. It says this. It says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, this is a really interesting passage. A lot of people think he might be quoting this Jewish text that was not included in scripture called the book of First Enoch, which brings up a lot of really interesting questions That is a study for another day. Pastor David kind of talked a bit about that in our house group video from last week. So I won't say a lot about the different theories on where Jude is getting this Enoch quote from. But I will say this. I will say wherever he's getting it from, he's quoting it to tell us something for a reason. And we want to get at his reasoning for saying these things. And what he's saying is something about these people that's really important and it agrees with so many other places in scripture that the message is quite clear. Living an ungodly life, a life without God, a life without a reverent fear, a trusting love of God will end in judgment. And ungodly acts are the evidence of an ungodly heart. There's no middle ground If you are ungodly, if you are without God, then you are against him. And he will bring judgment against those who are against him. And the truth is, the reality check for all humanity is that we're all born godless. We're all born against him. Each one of us. And maybe your walk with that has been long and rebellious and really painful, or maybe yours has felt more like a neutral stance. But there is no neutral stance. You're ungodly. And so you are against God. But then the good news of Scripture, Romans 5 says it like this, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, those people that were without him. 
And you see, the true gospel is not cheap grace. It is costly grace. It costs the life of the Son of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that German pastor I mentioned, he says it like this. He says, such grace, the true grace, is costly because it calls us to follow, but it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it will cost you your life, but it's grace because it will give you the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, but it is grace because it justifies the sinner. And that's costly grace. That's true grace. And man, it's good. It's like when Jesus compares his kingdom to a treasure that someone trips over accidentally in a field and they just happen to stumble upon it. And then they go in their excitement and sell everything they have to get that field. Everything about their life was different from before they bought the field to after the field. And they knew there was such value in that that they could not hesitate. They could not hold anything back or they will not get that treasure. But this cheap grace has infected the church and it says you can hold back whatever you want and you still get the treasure. But that's just not what Jesus says. He says, sell it all. Get the field at any cost. And that's the value of true grace. And if you are ready to put your life at his feet and be free from sin and be uh, on that path with him where he's teaching you to be the person you are created to be and you want to cast off this lie of cheap grace that you've heard preached and you want to give up this rootless life that you've been living and you want to sell everything and buy that field, then what I want you to do is during the last song, just come meet me in the lobby and I want to talk to you about joining that walk of true grace that the rest of us are on. All right, let's pray, church. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the book of Jude and the truth that you teach us through it. I pray that the truth of the gospel is, is buried deep in our hearts, Lord, and that some of us may need to hear this and be convicted and uh, changed and come to true belief in you. I pray that some of us hear this and they see that our lives are evidence of our unbelief instead of our, of our belief. And I, I pray that you would help them to actually believe. Uh, and we just praise your name and we lift you high. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.